This is The Guardian. A warning before we get started. In this episode, we discuss suicide and mental health issues. I'll be listing some support lines at the end of this episode and on the full story page. But until then, please take care while listening. I'm Jane Lee, coming to you from Wurundjeri Land, and this is The Full Story. Over the past decade, more than 200 LGBTQ plus Victorians have taken their own lives, according to the state's coroner's court. Now, the court is looking for ways it can help to prevent further deaths of transgender people by investigating the suspected suicides of five trans women who died between 2020 and 2021. While their deaths were separate, the court is asking how to improve access to stretched mental health services. Today how the mental health system could change to better support the trans community. It's Wednesday, the 13th of December. Tired of ads barging into your favourite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free. Or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Adeshla, you've been reporting on a coronial inquest. Tell me about that. The coroner's court in Melbourne has been investigating the deaths of five transgender women, Bridget Flack, Heather Parade, Natalie Wilson, Matt Byrne, and a woman that's known by the pseudonym of AS. Adeshala Ore is a Victorian state reporter for Guardian Australia. These are separate deaths, but the coroner decided to investigate the deaths together as a cluster. All of these women had a history of mental health issues and at least one current mental health diagnosis. They all died of suspected suicides between the years 2020 and 2021, Some, not all of the women, knew each other and they were all aged between 18 and 33. Mm. Why has the coroner decided to investigate these deaths together if they're completely separate? So the coroner's court has the power to contribute to reducing deaths that could be prevented. Typically, inquests look into specific circumstances around a death, but because of very key similarities between the lives of these five women, the coroner decided to investigate them together as a cluster Um, in the hopes that she can make recommendations that will prevent similar circumstances. Hmm. In this inquest, though, we didn't hear from any clinicians of the people who treated these five women. We heard from just one family member during the evidence. That was the older sister of Bridget Flack. Hmm. Instead, this inquest was focused on the challenges in accessing Victoria's already stretched mental health services and specifically some of the challenges for the transgender and gender diverse community who belong to a cohort that experiences much higher risks of mental health issues, suicide and self-harm. So Adesha, much of the inquest hearing focused on the evidence that was available about the death of the lead case, Bridget Flack. Tell me about her. Bridget Flack was 28 years old when she died in November 2020 from suspected suicide. You know, from a very early age, she was, you know, incredibly 
articulate, she loved reading, she loved writing, you know, she could get lost in books like no one I've seen. I spoke to her older sister, Angela Pucci-Love, who gave evidence to the inquest about her sister and also her experience dealing with Victoria Police during the 11-day search for Bridget. Angela remembers Bridget really fondly. She says she was smart, artistic and creative from the outset and a beautiful friend who was fiercely loyal. Artistic in terms of drawing and painting, um, loved music, always loved music. Um, And then again, as she got older, playing instruments and collaborating with people and bands and, and yeah. She was also a DJ, a writer and a union worker. Angela was 12 years older than Bridget and after their mother passed away when Bridget was in her teenage years, Angela took on a carer role for Bridget. So she spoke about how their relationship was a part sibling and part caregiver relationship with Bridget and she told the inquest that they were incredibly close and often would go see live music and go to bars together as sisters. (laughs) But I do have audio she would share if she wrote a song or um, recorded a song she would share it with me I had USBs with her DJ sets. Her sister actually sent me some of Bridget's music. other memories that, that you feel comfortable sharing oh look I can't think I think I think the one that makes me laugh is the one that I shared in my impact statement and I'd totally forgotten about this until about two weeks ago Bridget not only was a union worker but she also had a real passion for social activism and Angela said that this was one of her key kind of driving forces in life and I was with colleagues on a tram in Swanston Street um, heading to a work event and all quite corporate colleagues. And we got to Swanson Street Library, which is where we were getting off, and there was a protest um, or rally in progress. And someone's kind of mused to the group, oh, you know, I wonder what that's for. And I said, oh, I don't know, but I bet my sister's here. And literally the tram doors opened. And you can imagine how many people were there, hundreds of people. And the person handing out the paraphernalia for the protest was Bridget. Whatever she saw that was unjust and she thought needed a voice or needed action or she wanted to help. And I think that's a really lovely memory to have. Angela told the court that in January 2019, Bridget told her and her husband that she had started her gender affirmation process. When Bridget came out to us, you know, we were, it's a surprise. And one of my very first questions was, what are you doing from the psychological side? Are you speaking to someone? These are big decisions that you're making in terms of um, she was medically affirming via um, hormones. So what was going on in Bridget's life in the months and weeks before she died? As Melbourne spent large amounts of 2020 in COVID lockdowns, Bridget struggled with her mental health and the loss of her really rich extracurricular life. Mm. She was no longer able to DJ at events, she couldn't attend union protests and her involvement in community support groups was gone as well. Mm. 
Angela said that her younger sister told her in November 2020 that she was struggling with her mental health and she was trying to find inpatient uh, mental health treatment and reaching out to providers. Just before she passed away, when she said, I I need inpatient support um, and I think I need to go private and I think I need to go to one of these places and said, well, look, if you really need, like if you're really unwell, go to hospital. Angela said that Bridget had previously had a negative experience during a stay in the public mental health system. So she reached out to friends, online forums and other LGBTIQ plus um, organisations and people to seek recommendations for an inpatient provider. But there were challenges as Bridget was reaching out to providers. Angela told the inquest that Bridget had previously felt unsafe as as a transgender woman in the public mental health system. So she was reaching out to friends, online forums and LGBTIQ organisations to seek recommendations for an inpatient provider where she would feel safe and looked after. So Bridget disappeared in November 2020. What happened? Bridget was last seen by a friend on the morning of the 30th of November in Carlton. She said that she was going to take a walk in a park in Fairfield. Now, she did contact people via phone later in the day, but she never returned home. The next day, a close friend of Bridget's reported her missing to police, but the inquest heard that Victoria Police did not participate in any formal way in the ground searches for Bridget. Instead, a Facebook page created by members of Melbourne's LGBTQ plus community amassed more than 6,000 followers. Mm. And this page helped raise awareness about Bridget's disappearance and coordinate searches for her. Over 120 community members came out to help look for Bridget. And her body was then found by members of the LGBTQ plus community almost two weeks after she was reported missing. Mm, That would have been really distressing for the people who found her, but also all of the community members that were involved in that search. Yeah, the Commissioner, Victoria's Commissioner for LGBTQ plus communities, stressed that the fact that Bridget was found by community members was highly distressing. Mm. And Joe Ball, the Chief Executive of the LGBTQ plus non-profit Switchboard Victoria, labelled the police actions during the search a miscarriage of justice He said that the impact of Bridget's death and the fact that her body was found by community members was still being felt today and that there was a sense of deep grief for every person that Bridget represented. So it sounds like the LGBTQ plus community was really pivotal to the search for Bridget. Why didn't the police get involved in that search? Victoria Police's internal system deemed Bridget a medium risk when she was a missing person. The Assistant Commissioner, Neil Patterson, acknowledged to the inquest that the ground search for Bridget could have been better and this may have ensured that members of the LGBTQ plus community did not find Bridget deceased. Mm. Do you think in those early days of the missing person search that Victoria Police understood Bridget's risk as a transgender woman? Absolutely not. I can't believe that they understood the risk because if they understood the risk, I can't believe they wouldn't have done more. Angela told the inquest that she didn't believe that Victoria Police understood Bridget's risk level as a transgender woman, and she spoke to me about her frustrations with the police investigation. Despite that, we know through a Google search that transgender women in particular are much more likely to receive violence in public, assault in public. So to see it come up in court that she was assessed as medium risk was pretty heartbreaking. I think also 
what is medium risk? What is high risk? What is low risk? Like what what does that actually mean other than a word on a page? What does what does each risk status trigger in the police? Because medium I still think is quite shocking and it didn't trigger an immediate response. In the early days of the police investigation, Angela says that she spoke to seven different police officers over the first 36 hours of Bridget's disappearance. So every time I called and I got a different person, I had to explain the situation again. I got told different information. Um, So it was just incredibly frustrating that I felt like at an already stressful time, I was having to keep chasing people to help and to acknowledge that this was a really bad situation, that that we needed the people who are put in place to help the community with such situations to, to help us and listen to us. And I just didn't feel that we were being heard. Within the first few days of the search, Angela says that a police officer told her that nothing else could be done. I can't tell you how devastating that is when you think, I look to you as an organisation, as a body of people, who this is your job to help me. I am desperate and I need your help. And to feel like it's not anyone else's problem, that no one can do anything for you when you know that that shouldn't be the case is just a heartbreaking feeling. One time, she said an officer told her that she should call the fire brigade and say that smoke had been seen to get them to search Bridget's flat. It was proposed to us that that the fire brigade could get access. We noticed that she lived on the third floor, but we noticed that um, a window was a little open. And I got there at the same time as the fire brigade, held our breath whilst they put their ladders up. They got in, they checked, she wasn't there. Adeshali, you mentioned the Victoria Police gave evidence at the inquest. What else did they say about this period of time? Assistant Commissioner Neil Patterson outlined some internal changes that have been made since Bridget's death, and this includes updating police's missing persons risk assessment form to better identify risks to specific priority communities and vulnerable people. Mm. Patterson agreed that the lack of police involvement in the community-led search for Bridget may have contributed to the perception that community was left to search for one of their own. And what about Angela's story that she was told to call fire emergency services to try to prompt further police action? Neil Patterson said that he did not have first-hand knowledge of this, but that the proper process would have been to have permission from the next of kin and determine the best method to gain entry into the residence. Hmm. Well, the inquest also heard from a number of experts about the support services that are currently available for the trans community. What did we learn from them? A panel of health experts and representatives from LGBTQ plus organisations told the coroner that mainstream health services did not understand the heightened suicide risk that transgender and gender diverse people face due Mm. to discrimination. They flagged that for transgender people, there can be a period of vulnerability between deciding to affirm one's gender and receiving gender affirmation care. And this is due to really lengthy wait lists to be able to get in and see a health practitioner. Mm. Some experts, including Vic Harden from Thorn Harbour Health, told the inquest that they wanted to see more GPs who were able to provide gender affirmation care, such as hormone therapy. Mm. But Dr Tram Nguyen, a psychiatrist at the Royal Children's Hospital's Gender Service, said that there are actually a lot of barriers to GPs 
being able to provide gender affirmation care, such as hormone therapy. Mm. She pointed to the fact that this year, one of Australia's largest medical insurers stopped providing coverage to private practitioners prescribing this treatment for adolescents. A lot of these issues, though, the inquest heard really hinge on the fact that there needs to be adequate government funding behind this. Mm. A key proposal that was also heard at the inquest was co-designing mental health services with the transgender community. So, Daishala, the inquest has ended now. What could happen next? The coroner will now consider all of the evidence um, that the inquest heard and make recommendations to prevent similar deaths. This is really crucial because last year the court released analysis for the first time, which showed that more than 200 LGBTQ plus Victorians had died by suicide in the past decade. But this is actually likely to be an undercount because it relies on the identity of the deceased being reported to the court or to police. Mm. The coroner's findings could touch on bolstered training about the mental health risks faced by the transgender community within mainstream health organisations the need for improved data collection to determine policy needs and improvements to how Victoria's police's missing persons policy assesses the risk for communities that are more vulnerable. Mm. The inquest really painted a picture of Victoria's overstretched mental health system. You know, you've got lengthy wait lists both for receiving inpatient and outpatient mental health care Mm. and a shortage of beds even when someone is facing a mental health care emergency. And then the inquest was really able to delve into the additional challenges that transgender and gender diverse people face due to issues like discrimination and also a lack of understanding of heightened risk within mainstream services. Whatever the coroner recommends, this is going to be really important for the community who have really clearly outlined these gaps in the systems. And I think the families of the loved ones will be watching on. I think in everyday life, I would have liked Bridget to be more seen and heard, and that comes back to what we've just been talking about. Angela says that she hopes that this can lead to improved care and support for the transgender and gender diverse community. She said in a different and more just world, she wished that Bridget had felt cared for and looked after when she had sought help herself. I would have liked Bridget to feel that she had access to the same resources that everyone else does. Um, And I would have liked her to feel cared for and um, looked after and heard when she said she needed help. Background buzz inside my head Match with the chatter of mosquitoes Next, Transgender Victoria's CEO, Son Vivian, on the barriers that trans people face. Count out hours with my pacing. Do almost anything I can to make money. Never make conversation. Hey, Laura Murphy-Oates here with a quick note about The Guardian. As you're probably aware, Guardian Australia's journalism is editorially independent, meaning we set our own agenda. We don't have a billionaire owner, nor do we answer to shareholders, so we're free from commercial bias. And this independence matters because it means we're able to challenge the powerful and hold them to account. Unlike many news organisations, we have not put up a paywall. We chose a model that means our reporting is open to everyone and funded by our readers who can afford to pay. Every contribution, whether big or small, counts. If you're able to contribute and have a minute, 
head to theguardian.com forward slash support full story. We've also linked to this on the full story page. Thanks. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. So, Son, can I get you to just introduce yourself for the tape, your name and anything else you want us to know just at the top? Cool. My name is Son Vivian. I'm the CEO at Transgender Victoria. I use they, them pronouns. I identify as non-binary, genderqueer, uh, transmass. And I like bees and I have two kids. (laughs) Very good. (laughs) I just think, you know, it's important to uh, know that I'm not just a trans person. Like I have, (laughs) I have special interests. (laughs) Absolutely. (laughs) So, um, Son, we're speaking at the end of a three-day inquest into a number of trans and gender diverse young people's deaths. How are you going at this point in time? It's one of the most challenging things about my role and our work um, is bringing our bodies to the work that we do every day. And, you know, it means that every time we do media, every time we do advocacy, every time we're negotiating or advocating in health systems or for any kind of system improvement, really, it's very personal. So it's a lot. I do think I need to, as along with everybody else who was involved in the inquest, take some time to process um, the stories that we heard. Mm. Well, thank you for making the time and space to speak with us, despite how difficult this time is for you. Thank you. The coroner's court has heard that the LGBTQIA plus community banded together to find Bridget in those early days. How did that search affect the community? Yeah, I guess the positive aspect of it is it reflects great social connection and care for one another and, you know, a capacity to to really go above and beyond when we feel that mainstream services are not doing what they need to do for us. But in a perfect world, that wouldn't need to be, you know, it would be better if we could just be connecting about how fantastic we are as human beings and our insights into poetry and uh, maths and, you know, neuroscience rather than needing to be, you know, showing our skills as a search party. Mm. We know that there's a very high likelihood uh, that trans community will have themselves had personal experience of suicidal suicidal ideation. It's the stats are pretty horrifying in this space. It's one in every two people will have will have had some kind of uh, uh, thoughts of suicide throughout their life or actually acted on that. And when you've got that kind of um, experience just below the surface to hear or think through or, or be exposed to other people who are in those spaces brings it all back up to the surface and really makes it very um, live again. Mm. So there's that triggering aspect. There's also complex feelings around guilt and it's inevitably uh, traumatising and, and triggering and, you know, there's, there are very real concerns around contagion in those spaces. Well, you've been advocating for better systems and better services to support the trans community for some time now. How would you describe the way our healthcare and emergency services 
currently support members of the trans community? Look, it's very hit and miss. I think, um, you know, we did hear some stories around people having positive encounters and absolutely there are people out there who get it and are really good. I think the fact that there's a very real likelihood of it not being a good experience means that people fear the worst rather than hope for the best. And, you know, the likelihood of getting uh, sympathetic service providers if you're outside of a Melbourne bubble that might, you know, be routinely exposed to, to gender complexity is less and less. So the further you get out into um, the burbs or regional areas or the intersections of identities, the less likely you are to have access to people who, who get it. So, you know, that fear exacerbates the, the cry for help as well because you're calling to people who you don't actually really trust to help you. Mm. It could well be worse than not asking for help at all. And I think this is, you know, very live. What, what people often do is uh, just, yeah, shut down and not ask for help. And that's, of course, we know is not a great strategy. Mm. You also gave evidence at this inquest. What was the key message that you had in your testimony for the court? So I guess, you know, we were very lucky and, you know, it was stunning to be there on day two to be, which was the day for, uh, you know, the medical and clinical expertise to actually have a panel of people who were universally affirming of our needs and to start from that level of complexity of what can we do better compared with starting, as we so often do in mainstream media, from a level of we exist and we have human rights and, you know, (laughs) just these countless hours of our work, you know, goes into that just having to say uh, we exist. We have a right to be here. So I think it, look, our three key areas were really around, uh, wanting tangible, uh, outcomes in terms of improvement to uh, police systems and more broadly health systems that can accommodate gender diversity and gender complexity. Mm-hmm. The, again, a little bit self-evident in some ways in that everybody agreed upon it, but better access to gender-affirming care, meaning that while we've got some great gender-affirming care, it's not accessible to everybody. People across the state have to travel. You need to have uh, the consent of parents or enough social capital to get yourself to to a hospital. You need to wait in a queue. Uh, Similarly, in mental health spaces, uh, we need better recognition of the complex needs of gender diverse people and for those spaces to be culturally safe or safe enough so that people can, you know, entrust themselves and open up. We heard over and over again that, uh, you know, if you aren't even recognised on an intake form, your trust is not going to be high in terms of of whether a service is going to be able to help you in a mental health crisis. Mm. Beyond that, our third space was really around advocating for core funding for peer support services like our own, where uh, we don't offer clinical service, but we just recognise the, the need for social connectedness needs to be not ad hoc or project-based. It needs to be funded in, in core ongoing ways that mean that we can really accommodate very complex needs of community across the state. You know, the five deaths being investigated by the court are separate, but it's important to note they all involved young trans and gender diverse people who had experienced a history of mental health concerns and they had all affirmed or were on a journey to affirm their identity as female. You've mentioned a little bit about 
some of the barriers to facing mental health support and gender-affirming care. What what would you say are some of the, the biggest ones that trans people face? So the biggest barrier for trans women um, in these spaces is the the heightened visibility that they will experience um, if they have not had their gender affirmed, uh, you know, in, as a very young person. They're likely to be taller, they're likely to have bigger hands, they're likely to have things that will mark them as visible targets for violence in community. And they consequently carry with them heightened self-awareness around how they're being read. And and again, I will share this experience as a as a trans mask person. I think all trans people uh, carry with them throughout their lives, regardless of how happy they are or not with how they are seen in the world, a heightened sense of the way gender is moving around them in the world. You know, whether that's a mate at the checkout or here you go, Dal, you know, there's there's just every day there's these moments that can, on a bad day, add up to microaggression and feeling really so awful that you don't want to go outside. And on a good day, you know, the benefits of social connectedness when we share these stories with one another is a lot of them are quite funny and quite ridiculous because of the gender stereotypes that still exist in the world. So I think, you know, in terms of barriers to, to good services, it's I'm I'm pulling back to, you know, it's the big picture that's still the problem. We, we still have a world where it's not okay to be gender diverse or uh, to, you know, really kick at those boundaries of what masculine and feminine looks and feels mm. like in any way. We still have a very uh, controlled and controlling expectation of binary mm. gender. And it's very difficult, I guess, in that space to be able to reach out for support when you're confronted with these types of interactions in yeah. just daily life, let alone when you're really struggling, right? Yeah, yeah. And so the first the first thing that goes wrong can often be enough to just give up. And so that that you know zero to a hundred happens very quickly and easily when when the level of trauma is just always below mm. the surface. A lot of people find it just too hard as well. It's really confronting to have to go through these administrative systems just to be recognised as who you've always felt yourself to be. What would you like to see come out of this inquest? So I would really like to see a commitment from uh, our key services being police and uh, mental health uh, spaces and first responders to getting their systems up to, to scratch in ways that can accommodate our gender diversity. I think I also need to say in that space, it doesn't have to be perfect to start giving it a go, you know, like get the piece of paper organised so that there's a field for chosen name and pronouns. That's not that hard. Mm. The baby steps are things that make a massive difference and we've got to give it a shot and we've got to do it now because this is happening now. I think a commitment to uh, training spaces that, you know, right from CEO through to front desk need to have better understanding around uh, trauma around recognising complex mental health needs and around recognising gender diversity, not making assumptions, doing that regularly, not just once, you know, and really employing uh, trainers and people who are reviewing your systems with lived experience. So, you know, it's trans people that need to be actually delivering that training, even though it's also hard. 
beyond that, I would like to see some some core ongoing funding for for social support services and would include, you know, the, the family organisations like Transcend among those uh, who do incredible work with with families to support young people. And, you know, that, that preemptive care can really avoid some of these um, worst case scenarios. Um, we've been talking a lot today about the unique and complex uh, mental health struggles that trans people face. What would you say to anyone who's listening to this conversation who's feeling particularly vulnerable about the things we've discussed? There are services out there to to meet your needs. Um, sometimes we know it's not easy and you don't get straight through. And I would really encourage people to have a bit of a, a plan, you know, to sit down and write down on a piece of paper two or three people that they feel that they can talk to and reach out to if they're if they're having a rough time mm. and to start early you know like to have those conversations as soon as you're feeling a bit not okay or I often you know people ask me how I'm going I'll say I'm a bit wobbly you know it doesn't have to be a crisis to be able to talk about um needing to do um some self-care and self-care again I, I'm not a great fan of because it puts it back on the person to do the work but but, you know, make a list of the things that make you feel better. If that's a walk with a dog or, uh, you know, doing some artwork or know what your what your little safety net um, assets are and have them in front of you, visible to you, on the fridge, you know, ready to go for, for the times that you need them. That was son Vivian, CEO of Transgender Victoria. You also heard from Angela Pucci-Love, the sister of Bridget Flack, and Adeshala Ore, Victorian state reporter for Guardian Australia. If this episode raised any concerns, there is specialist LGBTQ plus support for Victorians at Rainbow Door on 1800 729 367 and nationally at Q Life, 1800 185 527. You can also call Lifeline on 13 11 14. All of Adeshala's reporting on the inquest is available at theguardian.com. I recommend you check out her feature article called Five Young People Dead, Inquest Lays Bare the Struggles of Transgender Victorians Seeking Mental Health Support. We'll post a link to that on the Full Story website. That's it for today. This episode was produced by Karishma Luthria, Daniel Simo and Joe Koning, who also did the sound design, mixing and wrote our theme music. The executive producer was Hannah Parks. If you like this episode, don't forget to follow Full Story wherever you listen to podcasts. You can also leave us a review. I'm Jane Lee. Thanks for listening. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads.